Good morning. Let's hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom whom he designated apostles. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will grow hungry. You will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. 
They are like a man building a house who dug deep down and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. One of the pastors here at Waypoint, and it's my privilege to preach the word to you. We just heard what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, a little shorter. This is Luke's account. Um, and I have a handout today, so you should have gotten, and the handout is just the passage. This is for you to take notes today or to take home and to reflect. So uh, I'm known as the handout pastor, so. I'm holding true, and I do have a prop, a visual prop that you'll see soon. So nothing spectacular or anything, just it'll be part of it. So I'm known for my props and my handouts. So if you're playing Waypoint Bingo, you can check both of those (laughs) today. Uh, I want to start today's sermon by asking a question. Have you ever watched a movie or a TV show that is generally moving chronologically, but has flashbacks and foreshadowing scenes? and is teaching you and showing you things about the past and the future as the show progresses. You guys know what I'm talking about? Actually, this is a really good technique. When a book, when, it, when a show or a book or a movie doesn't have this, it's, it's, the tension, it's hard to build tension. Um, the goal is to keep the watcher engaged and informed without revealing too much or too little as you move along the plot line. Most of the Marvel movies do this. The TV show This Is Us does this probably more than any other, and it actually gets a little confusing. Now everybody's into the multiverse, and that's super confusing. You know, so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just a normal on-earth timeline, you know, uh, not alternate realities and all that. Um, I think the Lord of the Rings trilogy does it best, a balance of, especially I love those movies. They help people see the past, and what's going on, and you still probably have to watch, use the subtitles the first time you watch it, because it, there is a lot. Um, but these, this is a common theme in, in our media that we consume and books that we read. Uh, the historical narratives in the Bible are often written in a similar way. They are moving us along a historical na- narrative, generally chronological, but not always exactly chronological. But they're always taking us back to the stories and teachings of God's grand narrative of the Scripture. And sometimes their historical account isn't a direct one-to-one record. They're always focused on the theology to teach us what God wants us to see at this point in the narrative. That's what the intent of the authors of these historical narratives. This goes back to Judges, Kings, Samuel in the Old Testament, Chronicles, and into the New Testament, into Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, trying to, to do both at the same time, teach us the history of the account, but also teach us theologically what God wants us to hear from the words of Jesus in the, in the case of the scripture we read this morning. We believe that God inspired these authors to write these words, and these are accounts are part of the redemptive history of humanity. So when we approach a passage like today's passage in Luke's gospel, we just heard, 
We need to see what Luke is doing in presenting these historical accounts of Jesus in this place. When I say the word the gospel of Luke, gospel is just the Greek word coming from a Hebrew word that just means good news. It's a proclamation. Normally in, in the Greco-Roman world, it was a proclamation that the, the, king, that w- the king's army had won a victory or the king had a son. The new king was proclaimed. It's, it's linked to like a royal proclamation. That's the word that is used. But we say gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they are the good news. So at minimum, as Christians, we should all know them well. We should know them well. They are the good news. In Luke chapter 6, I think he's doing something. It's going to be up on the screen. He's looking back. He's showing the present reality, and he's looking ahead. Last week, Pastor Lawrence talked about how Jesus gives us the revised, this new view of the Sabbath. Today's passage, Jesus names 12 disciples, and then he revises the law. If you are in the Bible reading plan right now, we're in the hard parts of Leviticus and into Numbers, and we're reading the law. Sometimes it's hard to understand, but to understand today's passage, we really need to understand the law and the prophets. So we're going to watch a, about a five-minute video from Bible Project that I, I feel like is vital for us to understand this, this, uh, today's, today's passage. So let's watch this video. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. 
And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. Well... A lot in five minutes. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible story, that was probably very helpful. Those of you who are new to the Bible, I get it. There's probably too much information there, and that's okay. That's okay. We're all on a journey. We're all learning God's Word. We're all learning how this fits together. But I had to show that video because I really wanted you to see the background of what's going on and what Jesus is teaching today in the passage today. Um, 
So let's look at the text. It starts off in verse 12, and it says, One of those days Jesus went to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this would echo Moses going to the mountain to pray and then coming down and bringing the law. Also, you, you might be asking, if Jesus is God, why does he have to pray? Why does he have to commune with his Father, Father God? And I think this is a good example for us. Inside the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, God is, is three in one. They pray and communicate with each other and rely on each other. And I think sometimes we go through our lives and we, we turn to God in moments of crisis, but we forget to turn to God in moments when we need to, we need to go out and, and love people. And I think this is an example for us. Jesus spends a whole night praying. The passage continues. Luke picks 12. I didn't name them in the... In the I didn't have... Um, David, read the names of the 12 because I didn't want to focus on that this morning. Later on in in chapter 8, Luke expands this intimate group and he says that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, and many others join this group of disciples following Jesus. But we'll talk about that later on, the, the choosing of the 12. The only thing I will say is if you look at the list of the 12, Jesus picked 12 men who are very socioeconomically, theologically, and politically divided and put them all together. It's a really cool study if you ever want to study Jesus choosing a zealot, someone who wanted to kill tax collectors, and a tax collector, and putting them in the same, the same group. Also, zealots wanted to kill Roman army officers, and right after this account in Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals a Roman army officer, you know, or the child of a Roman army officer. So this is kind of the backdrop. I want you to see that. In verse 13, it says, When morning came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Then in verse 17, he goes on. He says, He went down with them and stood on a level place or a plain. I think this is interesting because in Isaiah 40, it talks about how God's going to level the mountains and make a plain way. I think, I think when Jesus is going there, he's, he's doing so much. There's echoes of Isaiah, there's echoes of Exodus and Moses coming down the mountain, and there's echoes of Deuteronomy when Moses has to come back again and give them a renewed covenant. Not only are the 12 there, but it says a great number of people, disciples, these new people who are following him, and then a large crowd. They come to hear him, be healed of their diseases, to be cured of impure spirits, because power was coming out of them. All this is a fulfillment that Jesus is the Messiah promised in Isaiah. For this morning, I want us to look at two theological truths to this this passage. There's hundreds of theological truths in this passage. We could literally preach a 20-week series on this Sermon on the Plain. But I want us to look at the big picture. The first thing I want us to think about is, what is this new law that Jesus teaches? And then I want us to think about, how do we follow this new law? So question one, what is this new law that Jesus teaches? Let's look at verse 20. I love how it starts. It says, looking at his disciples. God looks at you. He looks at you. And he looked at them and he loved them. And he says this. 
you got to have a joke in a serious sermon, so I'm going to say a joke. How many of you grew up more on King James English, King James' grandpa who prayed at Thanksgiving? And you'd say blessed, right? Even though that word is blessed, blessed is a cool word now, right? It was about 10, 15 years ago. It was on plaques and stuff. I don't know if it's still cool, but blessed was really cool maybe 10 years ago. But blessed, whenever you say the Beatitudes, you always say blessed. But when you say other, in other times, so I, I think that's kind of fun. Another way to think about this passage, this is from N.T. Wright's translation. He says, blessings on the poor. God's kingdom belongs to you. Blessings on those who are hungry today. You will have a feast. Blessings on those who weep today. You will be laughing. And I'd love to teach on the Beatitudes. We've actually taught of them in Matthew. And I'm not going to go into them deep this morning. I I gave you guys that handout because I want you to reflect on these blessings and woes this week. But just real quick... It starts off and it says, blessed, blessed or blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which literally means those who recognize they need God. But here Luke chooses just to say poor. And this word means what it means in modern English. People without money, people without resources, people who are oppressed. This is how Jesus comes down from the mountain and he's given us a new law. And this is the first thing he says. Remember that. Ponder that. I'm not going to give you any more than that. Just, just remember that. Matthew's account, Matthew wants, Matthew's written more to a Jewish, very Jewish audience. Luke is written to a broad audience of Jews and Gentiles. Luke also includes his, his gospel. It, it, the book of Acts is a continuation of Luke's historical account. But think about it. Jesus comes down the mountain, and this is the first thing he said. The first law he gives them, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And he means poor in spirit, and he means those who are lowly. It goes on, and he talks about those who hunger and hunger now and weep. Blessed are you when people hate you, reject you, your name as evil because of the Son of Man. It's interesting, this is the first time Jesus brings up this title from Daniel. I can't even go into a sermon. I could need three sermons to talk about Jesus' title as the Son of Man. But I'm just telling you, this is, Jesus is bringing them, he's, he's showing them the past, this law that was good that God gave them that we saw in the video, they could not fulfill. And he's like, but I'm here to help you. You can do it because of me. Trust me. Then after that, there's a bunch of woes. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you who everyone speaks well of you. And a lot of this is he's, he's directly addressing the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders who oppress the poor in the name of God. I'd say that's a lot of what Jesus is doing here. But I think there's also some stuff for us. We live in probably the richest country that's ever, lived, ever existed. The richest economy ever. So when we we see stuff like this, we see these teachings, we got to be careful. Jesus taught a whole lot about money and possessions. And we'll talk about that as we continue to teach through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a church. But what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing these principles. He's showing that I'm fulfilling the law. There's so many echoes of Isaiah and Deuteronomy just in this short little section. He's renewing the covenant with us and showing how he can fulfill it, and we can do it through him. He will fulfill it. He is fulfilling the law, and we're doing it through him. He goes on in in verse 27. He says, but you 
who are listening. So he gave this really harsh command, similar to Deuteronomy, just with these blessings and these woes. And then he says, but to you who are listening, I say, this is how he sums up what he just said before. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. This is profound. You're not going to find this in a lot of other literature. Even at the end of this, he, he gives the Luke version of the golden rule, verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This, this exists in other cultures, other ancient philosophies, but it's always in the negative. It's like, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus' teaching is the only one in the positive. Saying, do, be proactive to others what you want them to do to you. And this doesn't mean let people do evil, the kind of sins that Jesus came to die for. This doesn't mean let people get away with heinous crimes and evil. That, that isn't what he's talking about here. He's talking about fights among brothers. He's talking about fights when we create enemies where we should be working toward reconciliation and loving each other. Jesus goes on in this teaching, and again, I'm not going to teach on it this morning. I'm trying to teach you the big picture of this account. But he, he ends this section. He says, you know, love your enemies, this is verse 35, and do good to them, and lend to them ex- without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And this may sound like, wow, I want God to punish the wicked, and he does. There's tons of passages where God punishes those who do wrong. But what this means here, what, what, Luke wants, what Jesus is teaching us and Luke wants us to see, is that at our, at our core, we're all wicked. We're all ungrateful. And God is kind to us, so we need to extend kindness to others. This is, and he'll go on right after this. He says, and tells us how to do this when he talks about do not judging. He goes on and he says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. There's this balance between judgment and mercy. If you read Romans 12, 9 through 21, you come away. I would argue that that's Paul's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, on Matthew and Luke's sermon. This account and the Matthew 5 through 7 account. And Paul ends it by saying, let God be the judge. You love people. Be careful how you judge. Interesting thing, the next passage, what does Jesus say? Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will be not condemned. So those are the don'ts. But what's the positive thing to do? The action you should do. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is hard, y'all. And again, this isn't... This is in everyday life. I'm not talking about when someone does a heinous crime. Yes, we, we can still forgive them. I, I, I'm, do you guys get what I'm saying here? I'm not, I'm not talking about if you see someone about to murder somebody, you don't just like let them do it. That, that's not what Jesus means here. He's talking about normal relationships. Enemies that are created in normal relationships because we're selfish. And he, he goes on and he says... Give, and it will be given to you. Americans love this one, right? You know, we love the little bit of prosperity gospel. Everybody loves it, you know. I gave to God, I get something back. We love the ATM machine God, right? The genie God. But that isn't the context of what, what's going on here. This is saying give because you're giving to God. 
If you feel called to do right to someone, trust God with the results. Don't give and then like start pulling back. Because if you're going to show generosity to broken people, they're not always going to do the perfect thing that you want them to do. We don't give and we don't love others just to make the person perfect. We do it to show God's love and trust God with the results. Jesus says in another place, don't let your right hand, in the other account in Matthew, let right hand let your, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. We can give generously. We can love generously because we trust God. If you're doing it because you're worried about what the other people think, then maybe it's more about you than it's about honoring God. All right, he goes on talking about the blindly and the blind, and then he says this famous passage. This is my prop. All right. Why? For those of you who listen to the podcast one day later, I'm holding a, about an eight-foot two-by-four. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How do you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I'll leave the plank up there as a prop. How do we do this? This seems, is this just hyperbole? Or is there some principle that we can take from this? How do we take the plank out of our own eye to help remove the speck from our brother's eye. Again, this is not heinous sin. This is everyday relationships I'm talking about. I would say, are you a humble, merciful, and forgiving person? And are you humble in a humble, merciful, and forgiving state when you approach that person to tell them about the speck in your eye? I think that's the key. When you approach the person, are you approaching humbly, mercifully, and you're like, I'm only, I, I can only remove the, the plank out of my eye because of God's mercy for me. And now I love you so much, I'm going to help you remove this speck. Remember that God calls us to do this for each other. And this can happen inside the church body. But we've got to be gentle and, and merciful toward each other. This comes in a spirit of, of humility. When Jesus approaches sinners, he loves them, has compassion on them. When someone who's falling or, or falling short in our congregation, we've got to be loving and merciful people. Now, sometimes the loving thing to do is to be harsh. If you see someone about, get, about to get hit by the bus, you know, not the Waypoint shuttle. You never get hit by that thing. That thing is safe and awesome. I'm talking about crazy bus drivers. If you see somebody about to get hit by a bus, you're going to scream. You're going to knock them out of the way. So, but in everyday life, sometimes it were so easy to notice the plank and forget about the... I mean, notice the speck and forget about the plank. Paul sums up the law of Christ in Galatians 6.2 by saying this. Carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I think this is on the screen. I may not have made it. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul knows exactly what this word law means. He knows that saying this statement will get him killed. He is basically saying that there is a law of Christ. 
He is doing something here that's profound. But interesting, how do you fulfill the law of Christ? You carry each other's burdens. I think Paul is in one sentence summarizing the Matthew 5-7 through sermon and the Luke 6 sermon. Jesus goes on and he, he talks about a tree and a fruit, tree and fruit. And this is, you, this is one, sometimes in the Bible it's hard to read it because it was written 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But you can read this passage and get the, get the content directly. You don't need any extra commentary. You know what this means. You know what Jesus is saying. So let's be people who produce good fruit. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, we all won't do these all the time, but that should be, when people think of us as Christians, those should be the words that come to mind. And then it says, you know, for out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So this is a warning like James warns us. Be slow to speak. Be careful what you say. And if you make a mistake, ask for forgiveness. And then, brothers and sisters, let's forgive each other. I'm, I put my foot in my mouth a lot. So most of, I'm a verbal processor. So probably, if any of you have spent more than 20 minutes me talking about some idea, Pastor Lawrence is also a verbal processor. So if either of us have ever said anything that you're like, wow, I can't believe you just said that. It's probably just in our verbal processing. We're a little excited to be around you. Eric's a little, Eric's a little more reserved, so he kind of comes back later and tells us, maybe Erica, my wife, we, there's a few people on staff who, who rein us in, but sometimes I've said things that have hurt people, and I have to ask for forgiveness. Sometimes it was, and when I look back, I was like, that was a little malicious. I shouldn't have done that. My heart was in the wrong place. Sometimes I just didn't even think about it. But let's be people who are careful with what we say, but then also let's be gracious toward each other as brothers and sisters. And when someone says, please forgive me, I'm sorry I said that. Trust that that's a genuine, you know, ask of forgiveness. I'm going to, you guys know what Jesus is doing here. I'm going to skip, there's a quote here, but I'm going to, oh no, I'll put it up. This is from Daryl Bach. He's just a, a commentator giving a summary of this passage. He says, we can put it up on the screen. Here Jesus sets forth his ethic for daily life in detail. The sermon begins with a recognition of the disciples' blessing as a result of God's grace. The rest of the sermon gives the ethical response to being such a beneficiary. Disciples are to live and to relate to each other in a way that stands out from how people relate to one another in the world. They are to love and pray for their enemies. Righteousness requires that they respond wisely to Jesus' words by building their lives around his teaching. In sum, disciples are to live and look differently from the rest of the world, even as they reach out compassionately to that world. So how do we fulfill this new law? The passage goes on and it talks about wise and foolish builders. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? For everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they were like. And then he talks about these two buildings. One is built on shaky ground. The other one is built on a solid rock. I found this quote from New Testament scholar Diane Chin about this passage. So I'm going to read it, and then I want us to ponder what she says. It says, The integrity of the heart is now applied to the challenge of discipleship as Jesus brings the Sermon on the Plain to a close. True disciples of Jesus hear his word and do it. 
unlike those who pay him lip service with, honor, with the honorific title, Lord, but do not follow through with acts of obedience. Jesus likens the journey of a disciple to the building of houses. The first builder sets his house on a foundation that digs deep into the bedrock, solid enough to withstand the floodwaters of the river. The second builder is a failure, foundationless. The house topples as soon as the river hits against it. While Luke's version of Jesus' parable focuses on the foundation and Matthew's on the ferocity of the storm, the result is the same. Wisdom and obedience keep the house standing. To the contrary, a house built on foolishness and disobedience is bound to collapse. Since building a house takes time, commitment, consistency, diligence, and care, this is a fitting metaphor for the life of discipleship. Calling Jesus Lord will inevitably lead to floods, be they persecution, calamities, or trials of life. Will Jesus' disciples hold up under pressure? And I know for some of you this may be a freeing statement, and for some of you this may be like a burden. How can I do this? We got a lot of doers in the triangle. I, I lived, I came from, I grew up in SEC land. We're a little more like chill, you know, you ACC schools, you guys are like doers all the time, you know. We're like C's for Jesus, you know, you guys are all making A's, you know. We do have Vanderbilt in the SEC. They're in Georgia, they're in Florida, they're a little more academic, but... I'm making a joke here, guys, but I, we live in an area with a lot of achievers. So sometimes when you hear a teaching of Jesus, you guys take it and you just think, wow, another burden. How, I got to build a house now. Holy cow. You know, I already have all this other stuff to do. Now I got to build this Christian house. And some of you are probably taking notes, literally writing it down, taking a screenshot of that quote. And... The essence of being a disciple of Jesus is resting on the foundation of Jesus. He is the rock. He is the foundation. Literally in the passage, it starts by saying, come to him, hear his words, put them in practice. That's the pattern. When I was living overseas, I'll end with this story. There was a point where local Christians that I was engaging with began to get harassed by the local government authorities and then the police came and arrested some of them for having a Bible study. And they made up some false things, saying they were doing things. And they actually wanted to sign them a sign of paper renouncing their Christian faith. I knew that they were in danger. I knew connecting with me would put them in more danger. So I didn't really call them or text them or anything. Uh, but I set up, I met with one of them. And we, we would always set up the next appointment without call or text. So we found a safe place to meet. And I was meeting with him, and he was kind of leading the group. And one by one, they were all getting arrested. And what do, you, what do you tell somebody? What do you teach somebody who's, you know, I'm like 26, and these guys are like 23, 24, just college students, recent college grads, getting arrested, getting... How do you, how do you tell them and try to encourage them to press on. I, didn't, I prayed, I asked God for wisdom, and I took him to passages like the passage we read today. And I took him to the place where Jesus says, don't worry about what to say when you stand before the authorities because I'll give you the words. And I told him to carry each other's burdens. But the amazing thing is they were already doing this. 
I was just kind of reinforcing what God was already doing in their hearts. They were loving each other, caring for each other, and they were loving the police, literally loving them, sharing the gospel with the police. As the police were harsher with them, they showed more love and compassion to them. This was 20 years ago. The house churches and the other groups they started still stand. They're actually facing persecution again right now as we speak. We're safe here. No one's going to come break through those doors and threaten all of us to lose our jobs. But uh, many, many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that's their reality. And they can trust God. I'm not saying this to put a guilt trip on us. I'm saying us who have favor with God and, and aren't in that threat. How much more should we be loving each other, carrying each other's burdens, loving our enemies? Do you pray for those who are against you? Do you pray that they would see the goodness of Christ? Or is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life so that when people see you, they're like, wow, something is different? Remember, this is resting on a foundation. This isn't extra burden. And we do it together. We carry each other's burdens and we fulfill the law of Christ. There's so much more I could teach on this. Take this paper home. It's, it's just the NIV translation. It's nothing magical or anything. It's just, just the passage. And reflect on it this week. Take notes. Write on it. Let this teaching of Jesus, when he comes down, he prays all night. Luke's like, this is the first teaching he's going to give in my gospel. Matthew does the same thing. Take it and just let it penetrate your hearts. Let the Spirit teach you through the words of Jesus. Come to him, hear his words, put them into practice. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for saving us and loving us and that your burden is light and your yoke is easy, that you're with us, that you're the firm foundation. I pray that all of us would come to you and rest, that we would know that you are the firm foundation and we have each other and we're building this building together. God, may that be true of all of us. And when one of us stumbles and falls, we're picking each other up, we're forgiving each other, we're loving each other, we're humble toward each other. And the world will see that and be like, there's something different about this group. And I want to know this Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you're always with us. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.